0: All right, welcome to Avian's official systems engineering podcast. Today I have Jim, Rhett, and John with me. Uh, This is the first time that John is on, so if you don't mind, John, can you give us a little introduction of who you are, a little bit about your background?
1: Sure. Hey, uh, John Sliger, uh, senior systems engineer at Avian. Came up through the avionics world, electrical engineering uh, system, and then transitioned into systems engineering, and, and most recently working on... The, the Navy's H-1 replacement, which is Aura, the attack utility replacement aircraft. Cool.
0: Awesome. That was short and to the point. like it. Um, all right. So today, we I don't think I've said it yet. We are talking about real-world MBSC applications. So MBSC, model-based systems engineering, of course, that's what this podcast is about, or a lot of the time, that's what it's about. Um, let's start with just the question of where is MBSC being used right now? And what are some of those applications that you're seeing in the different industries?
2: Well, certainly um, you're seeing a lot in the Defense Department in um, with lots of complex systems. Um, and that kind of lends itself to aircraft development. Aircraft systems are um, kind of by their nature, very complex, but that doesn't mean that's the only place it's being used within DOD. Um, There are other places that are being used um, as well, missile systems, um, uh, probably systems that are very networked. Maybe if it's uh, beyond just a a typical end unit um, systems that are networked with other systems, um, it kind of lends itself, because of the complexity factor, lends itself to a model-based systems engineering approach.
3: I'd I'd add that systems engineering transformation for uh, NAVAIR is working to transform systems engineering to use model-based systems engineering. And then I think the NASA JPL has done a lot of work as well with model-based systems engineering for space.
0: Yeah, and and just to remind folks, if they haven't listened, can you guys go over the benefits of that transformation, so switching from traditional systems engineering to model-based systems engineering, what are some of those benefits um, from the two that we've, we've talked about it before, but just to review?
3: I think I, I talked about it a bit last time. So John, you want to take a crack at it?
0: Sure, yeah.
1: <laughs> so, so from the perspective of a defense acquisition, there's a lot of paper-based specification, paper-based documents. Um, between all the disciplines, uh, not only engineering, but logistics, program management, uh, all the, uh, the supporting players there in a program office. But uh, with, with everything being paper-based, uh, everything becomes very siloed, and the, the connectivity or the dependencies between all that work is, is sometimes lost or, or, or definitely difficult to keep track of. So it's one advantage that a model-based environment does. It, it enables all those individual things to be created and documented, but then also linked to one another, to one another to show those dependencies. So that as you go through uh, and mature that design all the way to production and fielding, you can see uh, when, when a, an opportunity for a trade space decision uh, becomes available. You're able to see what all those factors are and how they play together, uh, and so that way uh, nothing's lost in those technical decisions are more accurate and are able to be done at a a, a rate that's typically faster than the, the traditional paper-based method.
0: Yeah, so it's hitting those points that we talk about all the time where it, it brings clarity earlier in the process. Uh, it, it improves the decision-making process and makes that just better overall. Um, and it brings a certainty to the whole system design. Um, which I think, John, you hit on all of those points. So, A plus to that explanation. Yes. <laughs> um, and to be completely transparent, obviously I'm not the expert and, and Rhett gives me a great list of topics to talk about every episode. So, I appreciate that, Rhett, very much. Um, let's talk about, uh, in, outside of the DoD, some of those um, companies that we know are using model-based systems engineering. So, you have like Ford and John Deere. Um, do you know what applications they're using them for? Or using model-based system engineering for.
3: I think it's a combination of managing the the change over time of a, a design. Uh, you can use it to represent both those interior internal and external interfaces in a way that's much more traceable than a traditional document-based approach. Uh, and you also have a highly improved configuration management for those things. So I think that's a, a things a that lots of people are using it for. You can also use it for simulation execution. I'm not sure if that's something they're exploring on, on the industry side, but uh, that's done a lot on the the more design side, less on the acquisition side. So I'd expect some of that's occurring.
1: I'll, um, I'll add to, may, maybe specific to John Deere, uh, I think everyone pick your favorite country music song, right? The, you got tractors. Uh, right. <laughs> but now with technology, uh, GPS, um, software, everything's becoming more complex, right? So you're no longer sitting there moving levers uh pedals you know the steering wheel you have these vehicles controlling themselves based on uh you know so much you know from uh, assisted driving to all the way to thomas driving so when you start bringing those technologies together the solution space becomes so much more complex and there's so many intricacies you have to track that model-based systems, uh, model-based engineering as a whole, and then specifically model-based systems engineering uh, helps to uh, control and mitigate some of the complexity that those solutions uh, require.
0: Yeah, and as you were talking, I was thinking, is there a hypothetical situation? So one of the benefits um, that we know model-based systems engineering provides is that it allows us to expose vulnerabilities or risks earlier in the process. Is there a hypothetical situation, and maybe there's not, but a hypothetical situation in the company of John Deere or the company of Ford that you could see model-based systems engineering exposing some sort of risk or vulnerability earlier than um, maybe traditional systems engineering?
2: I mean, I, I think it. I think I think what it allows is it allows when you when you have these complex systems and you start doing things like uh, you know John mentioned uh, talking about farming when we talk about farming systems tractors and GPS systems um, perhaps a sensor suite that talks about uh, um, how crops are developing and when the optimum time to harvest and that kind of stuff. Um, Certainly when you start bringing in a lot of those big systems, there's potentially a lot of unknowns um, when you try to implement something like that. And the risks can be um, uh, quite costly if you do something um, wrong in a big system like that. So um, this affords the opportunity to to bring that, you know, we talked about it before, bring the knowledge um uh, sooner so you can make good decisions so you have the knowledge to understand what the risks are so um, so yes I think it has a, uh, a tremendous benefit to exposing risks um, when we start talking about um, like I mentioned before the big complex systems
1: right and I'll add to uh, Rhett mentioned model you know the simulation side of the modeling looking at things like failure rates uh, reliability, Something you may, you know, I guess traditionally or before you may not have gotten until you've done hours and hours of testing, right, of something that's already produced. In the digital environment, you have the ability to do that sooner, more rapidly uh, through, through different analysis. Um, you're able to expedite that process to find uh, or at least identify potentials of, of where you may want to take a harder look and do more uh, prototype development. So it just – it allows it, – the the digital environment just allows things to again be moved to the left, be done sooner, and, and <laughs> once the model is created, you can run it as many times for you know somewhat minimal cost. So it's just the uh, the ability to, to do all those digital simulations saves time in, in testing and prototyping and production.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to throw another hypothetical at you. As I'm reading through this list that Rhett sent over, I see one of them one of the domains that he has listed is cybersecurity and i think right now we're recording this the week of may what's the 13th say it's 13th so we're recording may 13th right now the country is kind of in a frenzy because of the uh the hack of the gas pipeline or whatever was happening um how is there a way that model-based systems engineering could have maybe raised some red flags in that situation and again maybe there's not but I'm, i'm curious myself
1: I'll, I'll take an initial stab at this. I, prevent is a hard uh, <laughs> thing to prove. <laughs> I, I think you, uh, so, so with modeling and, and something uh, we're trying to do on some of our projects with an Avian is to, to enable cybersecurity. So it's less of re so it's less reactive and more proactive, right? So, a lot of times you, uh, I guess it's somewhat maybe traditional methods of appliance uh, cybersecurity. You, you don't know what you need to do until you have a design. So like, I, I don't know what controls to apply to something until I know it's wireless or wired, right? So like, I, so you, you get so far in the design process that by the time you know what you need to do to make it secure, it's almost like you've got to go back and rework it in. So you know, how do you do the more proactive side of that is something we're taking a hard look at, uh, and then the other thing too is once you have that model done uh, through through simulation, you can actually uh, I would say you would probably have most of your current threats identified, uh, and when a new threat or threat vector is identified, created, born, whatever, you can then take your model and see how your system reacts to it. Uh, so so maybe maybe not prevent, but uh, uh, maybe more of a risk assessment to those new, new up and coming threats as they as they become known.
3: I think there's a there's another perspective as well as if you have a better understanding of all of your interfaces and how they interact together across a distributed system or or multiple systems interacting within a system of systems, you have a better idea of how those those external interfaces and therefore threat vectors can occur earlier on. So when you're designing your system. You can take a, look, a harder look at that, and with that improved understanding, so it's a little bit harder to directly quantify. But being able to visualize that earlier on in the design process can give you some some more design trade space.
0: So my next question, kind of, in, I'm glad you guys um, hit on the simulation part because that's what I was hoping you would hit on, um, but what i'm thinking is so we say colonial pipeline has this model already set up they now know because it, it's happened it's real they know what the hackers did can they throw the scenario of what the hackers did into their model to figure out a way to counteract what they did or is that not potentially something? Okay. Uh, I guess that, that depends on how how good their model was to start with. Uh, yeah.
1: But yeah, I think that's what I was uh, trying to allude to with my statement. It's um, now that you now it's, if you one if you're able to detect it, I think that is something that may be missing in at least previous cyber uh, you know security uh, techniques knowing that you've been attacked right knowing that the threat has tried to enter and knowing whether you've prevented it or you've been uh, your your security has been defeated I, th- I think that's a, a big step uh, that would need to be in place but then the other thing is if you if you do know what the threat was and how it was entered uh, you can then model that threat and then uh, assumingly they, they made some kind of patch or fix right to prevent it right you could then test against it and probably extrapolate mm-hmm. some some of the variables on that threat vector to ensure that other other threats, other vectors like that are also, uh, can also be prevented or mitigated.
2: Yeah, engineers I'll- love to um, replicate when stuff breaks, yeah. if you will. <laughs> they love to replicate why it broke. Right. Um, so any, any tool, anything they can use to to figure out um, how it broke is is a plus to the to the engineering community. So,
3: I'll add one more thing from a slightly different perspective. One of the powers of model-based system engineering is that you have all this connected in a network or a graph, and, and representations behind each thing. So, you can understand if one thing falls down, what other things does it connect to? What other things mm-hmm. does it potentially impact? And in a document-based centric world, you can't do that. So you may not necessarily know how it will fail, or that might require additional analysis. But you can certainly reach out and touch all the things that if you pull one block down, what else Mm -hmm. will be impacted. Great point. So that's another another, Mm -hmm. another power of of MBSC. And like I said, knowing exactly how that will fail depends on the quality of your model and the way you implement it and a couple other things. But it gives you that starting point regardless.
0: So let's talk about that was we talked a lot about other industries and we touched on DoD a little bit at the beginning. I know Jim brought it up already, but what um, where do we know that the DoD is using um, model based systems engineering or are there places that we are certain model based systems engineering would be advantageous to a government customer without obviously going into too much specifics? <laughs>
2: Well, probably the the um, the number probably the, the, the first place it's going to be implemented are going to be in any kind of a new system. Um, so they start really with the ground up um, at at the at the ground floor, so to speak, um, and and entering everything you have into a model rather than having to uh, perhaps do an upgrade to a system. If you're going to do an upgrade to a system, and finding out that you have to invest a lot of time. Modeling your existing system—I mean, that's that—that that can be done. It's certainly, but but there's a there is a uh, a cost and time investment in that, and, they, and the uh, programs will have to understand what the return of that investment is going to be. So, certainly, programs that are going to be starting at the ground
0: floor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, I, I, I could see that. Do you do do you any of you know if the F thirty five program? Started with MBSC, or is it was it traditional systems engineering?
2: Um, I believe since it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, without being anything specific about it, I suspect that yeah. it's probably uh, a paper-based, uh, traditional document-based. Yeah. Um, it is a fairly long program, so you know, in terms of its age, so. Um, model-based systems engineering is relatively new—10, yep. um, 15 years—but you know we're talking. That's about the time when when uh, JSF first started. So, right, right. Or even longer than that. So
0: yeah. Um, so let's. I I think now is a good time just to dive in on the avian side of MBSC. What are we doing? What type of applications are we applying MBSE to? again, without being too specific, um, but how are we using it as a company and providing that support to our customers?
3: So I could see, uh, well, I know MBSC is being used in a couple different places. There's there's a standard four pillars of SysML. Uh, One of my colleagues put it slightly differently, whether you have requirements, interfaces, behavior, and structure at NAVAIR, Interfaces or requirements is is everything traditionally but we're working to move a little bit more into the structure and behavior Uh, and the interfaces side so traditionally you have a shell statement for everything Uh, when you feel like you don't have enough shell statements you add a couple more, when you feel like you have too many shell statements you might also add a couple more. Uh, (laughs) We're working to get away from that a little bit we're working to, to define the behavior of your system and based on that behavior, what do you need to enable your, your user need or your customer need? Uh, from that, you can derive your your structure, your performance requirements, your interfaces, and so on. So I think RIBs, requirements, interfaces, behavior, and structure, particularly heavy on the behavior side to start with. Uh, I think that's the, the main model or the core of a model. There's a lot of interacting or external pieces that kind of cut across that model. So you have things like cybersecurity, which we spent a lot of time talking about earlier. You have safety, you have um, cost, you have human factors. So a lot of those are cross-cutting disciplines or domains will be interacting heavily with large portions of your model. They're not necessarily deriving the core of your model, but maybe they're uh, adding some additional constraints, especially on the safety and the cyber side, whereas cost is kind of tracking your your progress and, and uh, the Anticipated cost of different parts of your your development process. So I think those are some of the major areas. You've got things like swap, size, weight, and power, uh, and, and there's more with each engineering discipline. And some of them will use more and less simulation. Really depends on how you're how you're using it on the acquisition or development side.
2: I think Rhett mentioned something earlier when we talked about system engineering transformation. Um, the uh, the the Navair um, one of one of our primary customers has been implementing uh, um, model based system engineering through a, a system engineering transformation initiative. Um, it's more than just um, deploying modelers into programs to do that. Um, Avian has done that. We have modelers. Um, and we have uh, system engineers that are deployed uh, within programs at NAVAIR doing that. Um, but there's also another piece that is the uh, the implementation of the discipline of model-based system engineering and model-based engineering. Um, we've been involved uh, with that system engineering transformation team in a number of areas, coming up with um, training, culture changes, um Uh, methods and processes, because there is, it's not just about uh, sticking a a modeler, if you will, into a program and doing something. There's a, it it requires, um, uh, it requires a a disciplined approach to um, systems engineering utilizing models. Um, It's not, it's it's more, because modeling um, requires more, Information and more work uh, than a traditional um, document-based system, but you get so much more from it. Um, so, so that's the that's the the things that Avian's been involved in is that is being involved also in that systems engineering transformation um, initiative that Navair has has been working on for the past couple of years.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Actually, is that your your program office your company may decide to say hey let's go down this road of mbsc it's not just a light switch where you flip it on and now all of a sudden you're doing mbsc there's a process Mm -hmm. that has to be um done and and you have to make sure that you're doing it the correct way um which uh i'm comfortable saying avian is really good at doing that type of work (laughs) so (laughs) right it looked like you were about to say something so go
3: ahead yeah i think jim was touching on the. I spoke earlier about how you the different parts of model requirements interfaces and so on, but Jim was talking a bit about how you how you get there, and so I think I want to expound on that a little bit. Yeah. There's there's process. Process is extremely important, and it's not part of the the power of SysML when you use it to model a process is you you go beyond just the what you start to understand the how and the who and the why and the the with what essentially so. Uh, back to the IDF zero days, you have a control, you have an input, an output, and a mechanism for your function. Uh, SysML activity modeling or process modeling is much the same, even if you're between a system or a process. So on the process side, you're looking at who's doing it. You're looking at what they need to begin their work, what they need to complete their work, and what that transform is from the input to the output. So process is very important. That gives you an understanding of where you're starting from, where you're ending, and with that you can begin to build out your schema. Schema is another extremely important piece, and this is probably one that a lot of people make mistakes with. The schema is the representation of your system model. It's the elements in a specific order, with specific relationships, with specific connections, that show you the skeleton or the, the generic representation of your system. And A lot of people will just start modeling. They'll just start throwing stuff together expect it to be useful. We've talked a lot about the traceability, verification, the ability to to draw conclusions from your data. In order to do that you have to have a structure, you have to have a schema that is consistent. You have to be able to know that I have a use case that's connected to this activity and from this activity is connected to this exchange or this this pin type and you have to be consistent with that to draw those conclusions. So it's not enough to just throw all the information in a model, it has to be well formed. Then there's things like style guides, uh, validation suites, metric suites, and so on. There's all that supporting information that helps someone do it consistently. Consistency is so, so important. But you take anyone new, they come on the program, they're helping you out uh, building this, they have to be able to do it the same way you are to be able to draw those conclusions. And then there's things like configuration management. Uh, I'll turn it over to John talking about configuration management because that's <laughs> great fun, but distributed <laughs> models project usages configuration management uh, allows you to do so much reuse and, and so much more it,
1: honestly and I can I can talk to configuration management but that's probably enough content for its own episode so uh, <laughs> definitely I, I think a, <laughs> configuring configuration management is a huge I mean you talk about the, its integration with then your your engineering baselines and the content itself that's it's that's at least one, if not maybe multiple just episodes in itself. So uh, I'll, I'll leave it there for the sake of time.
0: I can't remember, but I think it might be an episode in the future. Okay, so cool. We'll, we'll definitely wrap around to that again.
3: <laughs> okay. But to just sum it up again, it, modeling, throwing stuff in a model, it's not enough. You need the, the systems engineering behind it. You need to understand the process. You need to understand those inputs, those outputs, who's doing it, what it is they're doing how they're going to do it, uh, your your schema, your implementation. Sometimes you'll build supporting profiles or um, stereotypes to help enable that. And then the last piece that I haven't touched on earlier, I think I've mentioned it before, though, is training and the ability to bring in all of your other engineers. You don't want that, that closet where you stuff in your modelers, you stuff in your systems engineers, you close the door, you slide some papers under the door every once in a while. Uh, you're not going to get anything useful out of that. You want to You want to bring in all the engineers and you want them working in your model so to to set it up in such a way that they can do that is is extremely important
0: yeah uh i think um now would be a great time to just do a general avian plug and talk about our we have been talking about it but more specifically what our exact capabilities are Um, the document that i'm going to read this from i will Put it on the internet somewhere, link it in all the um, podcast episodes so that if uh, you're listening or watching and are interested in um, contacting us or reading uh, exactly uh, what this says, you can do so uh, on your own time. But our capabilities as a company, we, we provide skilled modelers like Rhett, like John, um, in at all levels of expertise. Uh, we provide initial assist teams. So we talked about that transformation from maybe traditional S, uh, systems engineering to model-based systems engineering. I assume that assist team um, helps you make that transition and transformation. Uh, We provide a functional environment with floating Cameo licenses. So Cameo is the software. I believe uh, Jeff actually brought this up in the last episode where we have what we're calling floating licenses, which means it's not tied to a program office. Um, It's not an additional cost. We already have these licenses. Uh, And then the ability to produce modelers, like from the last episode, Lindsay, who's going through the training program right now. um, And on the other side of that program, she will be a uh, modeler. So um, again, I'll link that document that I read that from. There's a lot more text on there that has some really great value, um, but I just wanted to plug Avian for a quick minute. Um, are there any last-minute thoughts that you guys have on this subject?
3: Two got, more. Uh, me, go ahead, Jim. Go
2: ahead. Okay, just just one thing because you mentioned something about um, Avian's capabilities, and I just yeah. kind of wanted to, I just kind of wanted to highlight that, um, you know. Two people on this podcast, Red and John, are, are, are I think, more than just modelers. I think they have a a, a very deep understanding of the system engineering process. Um, uh, What makes them also um, very unique is they have a deep understanding of the model-based system engineering um, and can bring that expertise to programs um, that need to implement model-based system engineering. So they're able to understand um, how we develop complex weapon systems in, de- in the Department of Defense um, how we need to do system engineering for complex systems and those kinds of things um, and then how to find and how to um, recognize what kind of needs um, that the program um, would need for for additional um, maybe true modelers or um, system engineers and things like that so,
0: Yeah, that's a great point, and I really need to delete the word modeler from my vocabulary, Um, but I was reading it off of a a page I have on the screen. Um, So model-based systems engineer is the right term and what I I should use in the future. (laughs) Any other last thoughts?
3: Yeah, two quick things. I think another area where Avian excels is the ability to bring in all those other disciplines into model-based systems engineering. It's more than just your requirements and your interfaces. It's it's all of those other things, like I mentioned earlier, safety and cost and cyber and so on. Bringing all of those in, establishing approaches for them, and enabling it for the the, the non-systems engineers, the mon, non-model savvy, essentially. The other thing I want to talk about is just a couple of places where I think model-based system engineering would be especially useful. Uh, in the future, we haven't seen it as much so far. so. I'd say any complex system. Uh, how do you define a complex system? <laughs> well, <laughs> if it's costing way much, way more money than you expected it would in way more time, then it's probably a good start. Uh, I think medical industry is probably a good example. Some of the more complex IT systems, autonomous cars would be another good uh, area. Ships, like cruise ships and things like that. So I think any of those large complex systems where you're seeing some of those cost and schedule overruns would be a good start.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you said autonomous cars because, as you were saying that, I was thinking, "Ooh, should we like give Elon Musk a call and see if <laughs> we can move out to Texas and and support Starbase or whatever he's doing?" Yeah, sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anything uh, from you, John?
1: Maybe, maybe a different twist on one of the questions you asked before, but you asked who, who, are, who we're working with. Uh, i think we're very very heavily involved in the dod sector but we're also uh, mentoring uh several uh, graduate uh, programs uh, specifically you know at the moment uh, mps and georgia tech so working working either with some of those students or some of those classes uh, from anything from a thesis or capstone project mentoring to you know speaking to the class telling them just like we're doing here the the real life, you know, so they learn systems engineering or model based system engineering in the classroom. But what does that translate to in, in, in real life? Right. When when the 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 easy assumptions you can make uh, in a, an example go away and you have a, a real life project that has real money and real schedule you have to execute. To. Um, and the last time we're working with uh, some of the vendors, uh, tool vendors who are actually creating these tools. Uh, you know we mentioned cameo uh, also uh, working with innoslate trying to uh, bring our lessons learned to them to, to one you know either from anything from bugs and, and possible solutions to them but actually or, or or new features new capabilities trying to enable those tools to better uh, complete system the systems engineering picture
0: yeah I think those mm-hmm. are all great points i I I knew that we were doing mentorship stuff. It was out of my mind, so I'm glad that you brought that up. And um, I think showing that, like you said, showing that we are doing those mentorship programs and providing support to help people that are interested in model-based systems engineering get into this field uh, is very important as well. So um, glad you hit that point. Uh, if that's it i think we're good for this episode so on the next episode we're talking about digital engineering um i don't even know where to start with this one uh, so <laughs> i'll be very interested to hear what you guys have to say i don't know exactly who's on that episode but i'm very interested to get into that discussion and, and learn about digital engineering and, and kind of what falls under that category so that will be on the next episode until then i'll see everybody next time jim Rhett, john thank you for joining me and that is it Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. (laughs) Take care. The Model Vision podcast is brought to you by Avian. At Avian, we provide extraordinary support in the areas of model-based systems engineering. We help our customers detect problems early using modeling with a purpose. With Avian's MBSE network, we provide a collaborative ecosystem to access, define, and implement a tailored MBSE approach for program success. Avian's model-based systems engineers work with SysMill using Cameo software to replace the document-centric nature of typical systems engineering. Our engineers expose vulnerabilities within your system before implementation, ensure speed to the fleet with a solution that brings clarity early, enhances the chief engineer's capabilities, creates a holistic view, allowing for better decisions making and simplifies complexity. Everything works together to bring certainty to your design. If you're interested in learning more about Avian's capabilities within MBSC, you can visit avian.com capabilities.